of Two Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. This two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to our generous underwriters of Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Monday, April 17th, we are studying 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 through chapter 2, verse 2. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. How then can we have fellowship with him? Only through the cleansing blood of his son, Jesus, who is faithful to forgive those who confess their sins. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us returning guest, the Reverend Dr. Thomas Egger. Dr. Egger serves as president of Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri. Dr. Egger, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thanks for having me on, Pastor Apple. Pleasure to be with you. It is a joy to have you as a guest today, Dr. Egger, especially to talk about a New Testament text. I know you you teach some Old Testament there occasionally at the, the seminary. Right. Maybe that's the way to get started here today is, as we think about 1 John and our text in particular, what is some Old Testament background that we want to keep in mind as we think about 1 John? Yeah, well, um, I think uh, the, the theme of light and darkness is a theme that is grounded in the creation itself with God being the one who is the source of all light, light coming in and dispelling the darkness as one of God's first creative acts. And uh, of course, we know uh, that the, the Bible ends with a similar theme in the new heavens and the new earth. There won't need to be any sun because God himself and Christ the Lamb are the, are the brilliant light of that place. But uh, all of that really grounded in, in God's original uh, creative act let there be light. And uh, also the theme of uh, forgiveness, and particularly forgiveness and cleansing through blood, the blood of atoning sacrifice, is a theme that runs throughout the Old Testament. You can think of it um, going back already to the Passover lamb's blood marking the, the doors of the homes on the night of the 10th plague, and the Israelites being spared by that blood. The, uh, the blood of the covenant being sprinkled on the people at Mount Sinai and them eating and drinking before God and even seeing the God of Israel, but he did not stretch out his hand against them because, uh, because they were his own chosen people um, splattered by and protected by the blood of the covenant. Um, and then uh, also the, the consecration of priests in the tabernacle, uh, in the book, as God instituted it in the book of Exodus, God said that priests would uh, need to be washed with water and also smeared with blood as a part of their consecration so that they can uh, be, uh, be holy and draw near to him and not die as they draw near to the holy God. And so in all those ways, and then throughout the whole sacrificial system then of the Old Testament, the, the Day of Atonement, the ongoing daily sacrifices of God's uh, people at the tabernacle and later at the temple, all of it was so that they could be a cleansed, holy, forgiven people um, um, prepared by God and shielded by God 
atoned for by God uh, through these provisions so that they could dwell in God's presence and he could dwell in their midst. All right, so we've got all that very helpful Old Testament background in place. Thinking about 1 John and the writings that we have from John in the New Testament, what what context comes to mind as we look at these particular verses in 1 John today? Yes, well, um, John's, uh, John's gospel, of course, has a lot of uh, uh, themes of seeing and light and darkness and blindness. It also has themes of uh, Jesus as the one who will be lifted up and, uh, and um, draw all men to himself and that he will be the one who uh, the whole world will look upon. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that all who believe in him will have everlasting life. And uh, there's a lot of emphasis on lying and truth, falsehood and truth in John's gospel. And all of those themes we see coming into this passage as well. Um, it's it's uh, also interesting to me that uh, this passage contains this greeting, my little children, and we can talk about that later, uh, this, this endearing address. And so uh, John, who uh, in the gospels is described as a, uh, as one of the two sons of thunder, James and John, uh, here as an apostle, he, uh, especially in his later years, he seems to have this real uh, tender disposition towards and tender address towards those that he's writing to and such an emphasis on love. So um, there's not a lot of language of love in this passage, but of course that too is a major emphasis in John's gospel and an even greater emphasis throughout this epistle. Yeah, I, the the thing that just amazes me about John every time I read him, especially in his first epistle, is the way that these themes that he brought up in the gospel come up over and over again. Mm -hmm. And and reading John and understanding John for me is, I, I enjoy it a lot because he, he really forces me to to dig into the text to think about it, and I, I I'm forced to think in a different way than when I read Paul. Like I, you know, I I. Paul tends to go, at least I think, tends to be a little more linear in the way that he arranges things, and John seems more circular. And so reading John, every time I, I come back to it, it's like, wow, I, I missed that the first time through. And just reading it over and over again, I, I find more and more to, to just love about John. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And a lot of that repetition and circling around and around in these verses that we'll look at today. All right, so let's go ahead and, and turn to the text. We are in 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we, war while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. That's our text today. That's 1 John 1, verse 5 through chapter 2, verse 2. 
So, Dr. Egger, as we said, you know, John kind of circles around to things, but what has he been saying so far in his epistle? How does he pick up with those themes and continue to develop them, starting there in verse 5? Yeah, well, the epistle begins with his with his announcement. He, he doesn't even begin really with a greeting. He just begins with this strong statement that really echoes the beginning of his gospel, where he talks about that. He says, that which was from the beginning— He's talking about Jesus, the eternal word, but he doesn't talk so much about the creation or, or uh, the preexistence of the son beyond just that, which was from the beginning. He starts emphasizing the marvel of their experience of Jesus, the incarnate God in the world. So he says, which we have heard, which are, we've seen with our eyes, we've looked upon, touched with our hands concerning this word of life the life that was made manifest. We've seen it. We testify to it. So he's, he's emphasizing at the beginning of this gospel that he is one of those who was with the Lord Jesus when God took on human flesh and came into the world to reveal the heart of God and to accomplish his saving work. And, uh, and, and not only was he with the Lord, but now he is one of the authorized spokesmen to testify to this to this eternal word of God, Jesus Christ, whom he calls eternal life in these opening verses. And, and he emphasizes again, we've, we've seen him, we've heard him, and now we proclaim him to you. And he talks about the fellowship that comes now between God and men in Jesus Christ, but it's a fellowship that comes through the spreading of this message. And he says, we're, we're, our testimony to you is so that you can have fellowship with us, the apostles, the, with, with the, this apostolic message that's so full of Jesus Christ, the gospel, in other words. The fellowship is in the gospel of Christ, and that that fellowship with one another in the gospel is also fellowship with Jesus Christ and through Jesus with God the Father. So it's, it's really it's an enormous cosmic announcement at the beginning. The eternal word of God came into the world and we've seen him. And he is eternal life. We're proclaiming him to you so that humanity can be restored again into fellowship with their creating God. Wow. Yeah, it is a huge announcement, very cosmic, as you said. So as he begins in this section, then, he starts to, to clarify, to be more specific, to continue to illuminate what he's been saying. He says, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you. I'm, the him there, I think, is, is Jesus, right? This is the message they heard from Jesus, and now they're proclaiming, now they, we are proclaiming this to the, the readers? Yeah, well, it's, it's a little, it is a little uh, um, uh, uncertain whether that's referring to God the Father or to Jesus. It really could be read either way, I think. But, uh, but when he says it's the message we've heard from him, it certainly is a message that was heard from Jesus. And uh, it, that's the emphasis. Jesus is the one who has now revealed this. Is it uh, the message sent from the Father through Jesus? So that the hymn refers, uh, refers back to Jesus. It's a little uncertain because... The next phrase says that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Uh, is that the referent of the hymns, uh, of, the, of the pronoun he and him there, or does it go back 
to the reference to his son, Jesus Christ, in verse 3. Although even back in verse 3, it mentions the Father and his son, Jesus Christ. So both the work of the Father and the Son are, are very um, closely connected here. And, uh, and clearly the message that has come into the world came from God. And it came through God's son, Jesus Christ, uh, who appeared in the world, the eternal word of God. Right. As, as we heard Jesus say repeatedly in the gospel, that to, to see Jesus is to see the Father, to know Jesus is to know the Father, to hear Jesus is to hear the Father. Exactly. So when we've heard the word from Christ, we've actually heard the word from the Father as well. This is the word now that John is proclaiming in this epistle. And that message, as he summarizes it here in verse 5, is that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. So Help us into that summary that John gives at the end of verse 5. Yeah, well, uh, first of all, when he's talking about the message and the proclaiming, it's interesting in the Greek there, uh, the, the, the verb for pro- proclaim is basically uh, the same word as the word for message, but it has the little prefix ana on the front of it that means again, or you could in English you could put re hyphen. So it's kind of like it's saying, this is the message which we've heard from him and re-proclaim to you. <laughs> It's a, it's a passing on of the same message. Jesus spoke it to them, and in like fashion, they are now uh, speaking it to us. And this message that God is light and in him is no darkness at all, this is such typical John kind of language, language that seems so simple and accessible and obvious. God is light. In him there's no darkness at all. But then you stop and really think about what is it exactly that he's saying here? And with John, there's, there's very often simple language, but profound truth to what he's saying. And uh, I think to understand what he means by this in this passage, we really need to, to look into the coming verses, which talk about the incompatibility of sin and wickedness and falsehood with this God and with, and, and with uh, the Lord Jesus. And so light here, I think, um, has a, a two-edged sense. On the one hand, God is, he is good, he is holy, he is pure, he's incompatible with sin and evil and wickedness. And also we're going to learn here uh, in this passage, this emphasis that God is true. He is truth. And uh, Jesus Christ is, of course, truth incarnate. And, um, and so light and darkness in the sense of uh, parallel with truth and falsehood. God is a God. Uh, he is not a God of falsehood and deception and lying. Okay, so when, when it says God is light, that really is so simple that it's like, wow, what a, what a simple truth, yet profound, as you said. We want to connect that thought to what John says in the following verses. So that God is light is going to mean, as, as you said among other things, he's going to give us the truth as opposed to the lies. Mm-hmm. He's going to give us what is good and holy as, a pu- as opposed to what is sin and evil. We're going to let John define those terms for us as the text progresses. Right. Okay. So God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. When I hear those words, I, I think it's the hymn, uh, in him there is no darkness right, at all. Right, right. 
yeah, that epiphany hymn is, is the one that runs through my mind. And of course, that that news that God is light in him, there is no darkness at all, is, is in plenty of our, our liturgical language that we have. I think it's the, the service of evening prayer to right. emphasize this fact. Right. Uh, it's, it's very good news for us. Right. Yeah. The hymn that you were just uh, referring to, I, I believe the opening line is, I want to walk as a child yeah. of the light. And uh, there you go. that yes. very much is, I think, drawn from this passage. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so we're going to keep those themes in mind. God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. Now, as, as John continues, he's going to, to apply that to what we say. He says, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So we're starting to see the difference between lies and truth come in. And this is going to be attached. I've noticed this as I've been reading through this epistle in preparation for for not only this study, but the rest of the epistle, that what we say keeps coming up in in John. He talks a lot about if we say this, this is what's what is or isn't the case. So once again, John gives us some simple language, but there's plenty that we can look at. Help us into one of the details from this verse, Dr. Egger. Yes. Um, well, uh, clearly he is... Uh... He is laying out a warning here that we don't, we don't on our own terms, define our standing before God, that God alone um, defines our standing. And for us to boast that God is on our side, that we have fellowship with him, um, that we, that we know him and, and, um, and can speak all about him. But that is a vain boast if we are not uh, if we are not walking in his light. And this would be both in the light of his truth. So if I think here the idea of walking in darkness, though on the one hand, we may think of walking in darkness as primarily behavior. Uh, I think it's it's it, it certainly includes our life, our way of life, uh, but it also includes our uh, our our speaking of and and believing in God, the the things that we believe to be true of God and the things that we say about God, all of that is wrapped together, I think, in our walking, and especially uh, when it when it comes to our fellowship, uh, our fellowship with God here. Uh, so to simply claim that we have fellowship with God while we cavalierly um, set out on paths and ways of life that are contrary to, to goodness and to God's own will and word, or to speak uh, and, and uh, make claims about God that are not in accord with his own, with the light of his own self-revelation in Jesus Christ and in the prophetic and apostolic testimony to Jesus Christ. Uh, this this uh, authorized testimony that God that uh, John was talking about in verses one through four. Uh, if we don't walk in that light, no matter what we say, uh, we are not in fellowship with God. And remember that was uh, that was John's claim in those opening verses that the mess that the message that the apostles are proclaiming about Jesus Christ is. God's plan for restoring fellowship between God and men. And so if, if uh, men refuse that testimony, 
refuse that testimony about what a good life should be and how we should live in the world and also refuse the testimony about Jesus Christ and his recon reconciling, saving work, uh, there is no other fellowship with God other than that gospel message that has appeared in the world in, in uh, Jesus Christ. And so in some ways, this is, this is building on those opening verses. If we say we have fellowship with him, but we don't walk in the light of this apostolic testimony, if we refuse it and try to establish our own paths and our own truths, um, we are simply lying to others and not practicing the truth. And again, and again here, uh, truth and falsehood as defined by Jesus Christ and the apostolic testimony to Jesus Christ. So as you were talking there about walking in the light, my mind went to the Psalm 119, your word is a lamp to my feet yes. and a light to my path. That that language of, of a light and the path, and I mean, that's another big Old Testament theme that seems to be in the background here. Yes. Uh, I think of also uh, Isaiah 8 and 9, where it talks about those living in the land of the shadow of death have seen a great light. And then it goes on to talk about, for unto us a son is born, unto us a child is given. Jesus is that light coming into the world. But in the verses before that, right before that, in Isaiah chapter 8, Isaiah has been talking about the deep darkness on the land. And he's not talking about some kind of physical darkness. He's talking about the spiritual darkness that has come because people have turned away from the, from the prophetic word of God, the, the, the warnings and promises of Israel's prophets. And so he says, he says, back to the Torah and back to the testimony. If they do not walk by this light, it is because they have no dawn. <laughs> there is, there's no hope of light uh, apart from God's word. It reminds me a little bit of uh, Jesus' warning, um, uh, uh, or actually the warning uh, that Jesus weaves into his story of the rich man and Lazarus, where um, in hell, the rich man says uh, to Abraham, whom he sees up in paradise in comfort with God, um, he says, um, please uh, uh, send uh, send some angels to warn uh, to warn." Uh, my my loved ones in the world so that they don't uh so that they don't come to the same fate and uh and the response is they have moses and the prophets let them listen to them if they don't listen to to uh, the scriptures they won't believe even if someone rises from the dead and um i think that's that's very much in the same spirit as as john's letter here the truth and the light that he's talking about is very much tied to this word of God, the person of Jesus Christ, but also the word of God, the testimony of the apostles who were the eyewitnesses of Jesus and now his authorized spokesman. And so when we talk about walking in that light, as you said, that's going to include both faith and life, what, what we believe and what we live, you, you were talking about that, and I, my mind went to the way Luther explains in his catechism concerning a couple of petitions in the Lord's Prayer, but I suppose the first one is in the first petition, where he talks about the way God's name is kept right, holy. Right, right. And it, it's both involved with hearing and learning the Word of God in truth and purity, but then also leading holy lives according to it. Exactly. Yeah, great, That's, great connection. It's like John's doing that same thing here. Mm -hmm. Or 
or L- Luther or, stole it from right. John. That's right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Get the order right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> All right. So, so faith and life, they go together. Both are involved in this matter of walking. Talk a little bit more about the fellowship that John is talking about. You, you mentioned it shows up in the, the first four verses as well, and it comes up again here. That's one of those words that that we use in a variety of ways in English, and I don't know if all of the the ways that we hear them in English, like the fellowship hall, or we maybe think about you know eating together and spending time together. Right. It seems like John's got a bigger a bigger idea in mind when he talks about fellowship. Right. Right. Well, the word in Greek is koinonia, and uh, and it I think it 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 basically means togetherness, like a blessed togetherness. And I think sometimes it's uh, sometimes it is helpful to use analogies or stories to capture uh, some of these big concepts. And certainly the picture of the picture of the Garden of Eden was a picture of fellowship between God and men. God would come walking in the garden. He would have conversation with Adam and Eve. They were welcome in his presence. They were at home in his presence. Um, they delighted in one another. I think the, the picture of a family or the picture of even a marriage is a beautiful bond of fellowship, of togetherness, koinonia. Um, and, and certainly the church as a whole uh, is, is uh, called to be a holy, a holy fellowship, a holy togetherness in this world. Um, think of the story of the prodigal son, where the son has been alienated. He's lost fellowship with his father, and now he comes back, and he's he's welcomed uh, by a running father with open arms. This is the kind of uh, this is the kind of reality that God created humanity for, to have fellowship with one another. Right at the creation of the world, everything was good, but God did look at one thing and he said, it's not good for the man to be alone. And so he created the woman and through the two of them offspring so that there would be this human community, human togetherness. And that togetherness is an extension of the love and the fellowship between uh, our etern- the, the three persons of our eternal God that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit have been in perfect unity and fellowship with one another from the foundation of the world. And in Jesus Christ, now God is drawing these alienated, dying sinners who are hostile to him. And, and he, in some sense, is hostile to them. They're under his curse and judgment because of sin. But in his mercy, in Jesus Christ, he's drawing them back into fellowship. And uh, verse three, really uh, back in verse three, this idea of this inner Trinitarian uh, or inner Trinitarian fellowship is referenced there. Um, the goal of the apostolic gospel is to reach out to sinners like, like you and me and to invite us into fellowship with us, John says, with, with Jesus' apostles. And, and indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, he says. Um, so there, there's this... And, and John, too, uh, in his gospel, uh, in the gospel of John, talks a lot about uh, this relationship between the Father and the Son and us being drawn into that same kind of sonship. Uh, not exactly the same kind of sonship. I shouldn't have said the same kind of sonship, but us also being drawn into sonship with God, 
which is this beautiful, familiar, uh, familial fellowship with the God who made us. Mm, yeah, as, as John says in his prologue, in, in his gospel, it's you know, that we were born not of the will of the flesh nor the will of man, but born of God. That yeah. is how we become children yeah. of God. Yeah, and, Jesus and in that we have fellowship. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So let's let's keep talking about some of these themes on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking to Dr. Thomas Egger this morning about First John. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, April 17th. We're studying 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 through chapter 2, verse 2 with Reverend Dr. Thomas Egger. He is the president of Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri. Dr. Egger, prior to the break, we were looking at verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. John continues into verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. There's that word fellowship again. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. You mentioned at the beginning of our conversation this morning that this thought of blood cleansing is a key theme that we see in the Old Testament that John brings in. Take us into that theme there in verse 7. Yeah, well, it, 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 it's, always, uh, it's always striking, this image of blood cleansing, isn't it? Mm-hmm. That, uh, that our, our foulness before God would be washed away and cleansed in the blood of Jesus. But uh, John uses this language here. Uh, of course, there's the beautiful picture in John's, uh, in John's account in, uh, in the book of Revelation, where he talks about the saints, uh, the saints before God in heaven who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And um, the idea here is that uh, there is an uncleanness of humanity that prevents us from coming near to God. God in his holiness um, will not have foulness and uncleanness in his presence. And, uh, and that was a problem for us because we are foul and unclean in our sin in so many ways. And yet God has made a way through cleansing blood. And, um, uh, there is a substitutionary aspect to this, so we can certainly um, look at the sacrifices, and the, the Bible teaches this. The Bible teaches that the reason why the sacrifices atone for sin is at the price of a life. So it's a life for a life. The animal's life is given in place of my life that should have been forfeit because of my sin, but instead another life is taken. And of course, it wasn't simply the life of the animals, but it was as those animal sacrifices anticipated the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus 
that God um, reckoned them as atoning and and uh, and uh, um, and uh, uh, a means by which God would leave sin unpunished and not stretch out his hand against the people. But here the language is not simply that of the blood sparing the people, uh, sparing them like you might think about uh, the blood of the, the Passover lamb on the doorposts as, they, as the destroying angel is passing through the land, as God himself is passing through the land of Egypt, striking people down. But it actually also cleanses the people in a sense. So not only do they escape punishment, but they can come near to God. And this is, this is very, uh, very closely related to this idea of, fel of fellowship then, of restored koinonia, restored communion between God and men, this nearness. And the book of Hebrews is full of this theology that because of Jesus and his high priestly work, both as the priest who offers the sacrifice and as himself, the once and for all blood sacrifice, through this sacrifice, he now enables us to come near to God again. And we have this already uh, already in our worship. God himself comes to be in the midst of his people. And because of the cleansing power of Jesus' blood that comes over us through the word of the gospel, in the water of our baptism, in the body and blood of Christ, in the Lord's Supper, in the words of absolution spoken by a pastor, all of this is the, is the cleansing power of Jesus' blood. And because we are clean in Jesus' blood, we can approach God with confidence. We can stand in his very presence in Christian worship. And that itself is a foretaste of the even greater uh, nearness and the even fuller closeness that we will experience when Jesus comes again visibly and uh, raises the dead and gathers his people to himself, near to himself in fellowship forever. Yeah, it's striking that this verse, which speaks about the blood of Jesus cleansing us from all sin and the, the connections that you made to the worship service and the way that Jesus' blood then brings us into this presence of God is just in that same context in words that we do often hear within the divine service. Verses 8 and 9 of 1 John chapter 1 are, at least among Lutherans who use Lutheran service book or Lutheran worship before it, these are words that perhaps are the among the most well-known in among Lutherans because they show up in our divine service. So take us into to verses, in eight, verses 8 and 9 of this chapter, very familiar to us from the divine service. Yes, yes. Um, before we go to verse 8, just let me mention one last thing about the end of verse 7. Let's not miss the word all. Uh, so powerful. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. And for those whose consciences trouble them over, over some great uh, sin in their past that weighs on them or over a, a nagging sin that continues to torment them, um, this is a beautiful, beautiful uh, promise from Jesus' own apostle, John, who says the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin and uh and we rejoice in that um knowing and and knowing that um verses eight and uh eight and nine are part of our liturgy because god invites us to confess our sins to him and he also authorizes our our pastors 
called servants to forgive sins in his name. And so we come before him with these, uh, um, our confession is prefaced by these words. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Here's this idea of, of truth and lying again, but, but let's be clear. And actually, this is an important verse for the rest of 1 John, because there are some passages that sound uh, a little strange and challenging in John's epistle um, that, that make one wonder, um, does John think that we, that, that Christians never sin <laughs> and that, and that we should, uh, and that if we're true believers, we would have triumphed over all of our sin. And here he's very clear and explicit that if we say we don't have sin, we are not being truthful. Christians sin. And uh, it's not the goal. It's not right. It's not good that we do, but it's true that we do. And, um, and what do we do with that sin? Uh, we don't deny it. That would be to deceive ourselves. Instead, we confess it. And why do we confess it? Because we have a God who is faithful to us and just, and he forgives and he cleanses. He will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In other words, he will, uh, he will blot out our sins. He will forget them. He will uh, cast them into the depths of the sea. He forgives us. Hmm. I'm, I'm glad you pointed that out in verse 8, the way that this helps us to understand things that John will say elsewhere. As we were saying earlier, you know, every time you read John, you just have to keep all these things in mind that he's been developing. And so verse 8 and then verse 10 that we'll talk about in a moment right. are, are important verses to keep in mind when he will talk about, well, even in our own text, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Well, I thought I was supposed to say that I have sinned and that I do have sin or I'm lying. Those We, we want to hold all those things together. And he'll, as you said, in, in coming verses, he'll say more things like that. We want to keep those things together so we understand them holistically as John's putting them together. Yes. And these are beautiful verses. I, there's been a couple of moments in, in our conversation where I've, I've had in mind what, and I think you, you brought it up with Genesis chapter three and, and what happens there and the way that Adam and Eve try to deny their sin. And you can see the only ones that they're deceiving are themselves. Yes. They're, they're not deceiving God. He knows. And yet his grace then by the end of that text, as he, as he does send them out of the garden, but he clothes them in those animal skins I think some of those themes there in Genesis three are inherent in in what we have here in First John. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and verse ten here, um, verse ten really just says the same thing as verse eight, uh, but it ups the ante a little bit. So verse eight says, "If we have no sin, we we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us." In other words, we're lying to ourselves, um, and we are not being truthful. But then in verse 10, he says the same thing in a different way. He says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. We make God a liar. Um, and it's this is strong language. Uh, this is literally what, uh, this is exactly, uh, woodenly, literally what John writes here is that, uh, that we make God a liar and his word is not in us. And this really does remind me of, uh, of the garden, right? Um, did God really say, and, uh, and they get into that conversation, the, the woman and the, and the serpent, and finally the serpent just lays it all out on the table. He says, you will not surely die. 
So God has said, uh, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And the serpent says, you will not surely die. And the woman, the woman uh, banks on that. You know, she, she believes the, the liar and she believes the liar as truth. Right. And, and in doing so, she really is making God a liar by assu- and assuming that his word uh, should be rejected and his word is not in us, John says. That was, the found- that was the fount and the fountainhead of all human sin and suffering and alienation from God. And for us to continue to deny our sinfulness is, uh, is to continue in that rebellion and alienation from God and, and acting as if God is a liar. And, and why does it make God a liar? Because his law and his word both describe what is good and holy and righteous. And so we know from that that we are sinners. His word written in our hearts describes that. And his word also tells us that all human beings are sinful. Um, so I should be able to recognize all of the specific sins in my life because of God's um, true word, and I shouldn't deny the ways that I fall short of that, nor should I deny that those are that that is the the true description of goodness and a good life in the world. And I also uh, should not deny God's claims um, about humanity in general, that I, along with all men, uh, am lost in sin. Well, and we see both of those things within the confession of sins that we speak in the divine service. We confess that we are poor, miserable sinners and that we have sinned in thought, word, and deed. Exactly. Both of those go together. And again, to do so is to speak God's truth. I mean, I think you really see how a lot of these themes that John has been giving us in just these few short verses come together, mm-hmm. that to, to walk in the light is tied to the truth of God's word, Part of the truth of God's word is who I am as a sinner and what I have done in my sinning. And so rather than trying to deny that, I actually walk in the light by speaking the truth that God has told me in his word in confessing. And, and what's remarkable about that is, is then I have that fellowship with God, that, that my fellowship with God isn't found in my perfect behavior but it's found in being this one who has been cleansed by the blood of Jesus and forgiven and, and washed and made holy and clean, not by my own works, but by his. Yes. There's, there's a lot of overlap here, I think, uh, with John chapter 3, right after the yeah. very familiar John three sixteen, where John goes on to say that uh, whoever doesn't believe uh, in, in the Son of God stands condemned and is still in his sin. And he gives a little explanation of why that might happen. He says... He says, because they refuse to come into the light, lest their deeds be exposed. Um, so sometimes people refuse uh, refuse the gospel, refuse to acknowledge the testimony of Jesus' apostles about his saving work because they don't want to acknowledge their own sinfulness. And this, for us who are Christians and have such joy in being cleansed, and being able to bring our sins before God and know the hope that sinners have in Jesus Christ, this is not a terrifying thing. But uh, but to those apart from Christ, those without faith, those who don't see that love and that rich mercy, to admit that you are a sinner and to come to terms with that uh, is, is a daunting thing. And it's something that uh, people 
people uh, are wired to resent, wired to be hostile against those who would speak of them as sinners. So we think the God, we think communicating the gospel uh, should be such a, a, a welcome, that message should be so welcome to people. But the first part of the message is that they are hopeless sinners, that they are foul and unclean. And that is not a welcome message uh, to us um, before God opens our eyes to his love and mercy. Yeah, I think it, connecting this to John chapter 3 is very helpful so that we would seek after the light of Christ, which, yes, is painful as he exposes our sins, but he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us. That is why he exposes those sins, is to get rid of them for us, to forgive us and, and make us clean. Now, as, as John continues then into chapter 2, he calls his readers, his hearers, my little children. You mentioned this at the, the outset. Talk about that address that John gives them, my little children. Yeah, well, you, you can picture the, this uh, older, seasoned uh, apostle um, just a- addressing, addressing um, his beloved uh, fellow Christians as as their as their as their father as their elder in the faith and uh this sense of ownership and responsibility maybe responsibility is a better word than ownership but this sense of of uh um he has brought this light to them and they now are his little children in the faith he cares for them um christ communicates his care and his compassion for his people uh, through other people. Uh, and so clearly this happens in uh, this happens in homes. God uh, has designed things so that his love and care for us is first expressed to us through the vocations of our father and our mother um, and that we come to know something important about God himself. Uh, through the love of our father and our mother, and also the disposition of the apostles um, towards uh, St. Paul. Some of his letters are full of these expressions of affection, care, and responsibility for the people he's writing to. And here you hear it in, in John's voice. And, uh, and for us who are pastors in the church, this is a good uh, reminder of a, a part of the nature of our calling uh, to, to have genuine affection for and to express affection and care and, and, and to own this sense of tender responsibility uh, for the people that we are called to bring the gospel to. Uh, I think John's voice uh, captures that very nicely. Then he, he says to his little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. What is John saying there? Yeah, well, I, I think first we have to take the first half of that statement very seriously and then take the second half of the, of the uh, statement equally seriously. But both have to have their voice. So um, We've been talking about confessing sins to God and God, his faithfulness to forgive and cleanse. And that would be foolish to pretend that we don't sin. And yet um, he began by talking about, uh, by, by calling and, uh, and exhorting uh, his hearers to walk in God's light, walk in the light of his truth. And so he reminds them here, um, he is writing this to them so that they do not sin so that they walk in light and in goodness and in love and in purity and in righteousness. Um, 
that they walk at, uh, in the in the footsteps of their Lord Jesus. Um, that's the goal. Uh, so this is not a passage. It reminds me a little bit of Romans six, where Paul has been talking about this wonderful forgiveness and propitiation and atonement uh, that we have because of Jesus and His righteousness and all this forgiveness. And then he says. Uh, so should we just go on sinning that grace may abound? <laughs> In other words, right. the more sin, the more forgiveness. So maybe we should just sin a lot. And and Paul says in Romans 6, by no means. And John says here, I'm writing these things to you about forgiveness and and cleansing by Jesus' blood, not so that you'll sin more, but so that you won't sin, so that you'll know who you are in Jesus Christ so that you'll remember the fellowship that you've been restored to with the God who is light, in whom there is no darkness at all. So he's writing these things so that they not sin. And that's the calling of the Christian life. The Christian life is to turn away from sin and walk in the better paths that our Lord has revealed to us and, uh, and called us into. And at the same time, as we've already heard in the previous verses, we still sin. And to say that we don't would be a lie. And so though he writes these things to urge them not to sin, he also says, but if anyone does sin, which as we know from the previous verses will happen, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And uh, yeah, this word for advocate here um, is is actually paraclete. So in, in other translations, uh, in John's gospel, the Holy Spirit is described as the paraclete, the comforter, the one who comes alongside of us. Um, it literally means the one who's called to the side, either as a helper or as an advocate to others. Uh, here, as it says, an advocate with the Father, uh, paraclete with respect to the Father, Jesus is the one who comes to our side and uh, and speaks to the Father on our behalf is the idea. And, uh, and uh, um, so it's not only the Holy Spirit who is the paraclete, the helper, the comforter, the advocate, uh, but also Jesus is described in this way, both here in this passage and also uh, even in John's gospel, Jesus says at one point, the Father will send you another paraclete. Uh, speaking of the Holy Spirit, but when he says another paraclete, he means... Uh, He's implying that he himself has been and, and continues to be such a helper and advocate and comforter for the people. Yeah, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, he is our advocate with the Father. We are going to be cleansed from unrighteousness, John has just said. That will happen through Jesus Christ, who is the righteous one. He is the one who cleanses us from that unrighteousness. In verse 2, then, the last verse we have for today, John calls Jesus the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. About three and a half minutes here, Dr. Egger, to talk about this verse. The word propitiation is one that's probably not very common in English language. Help us to understand what that means. I think we need some Old Testament background for this and help us to wrap up our conversation. Yeah, well. great. Well, the Greek word here is helasmos, helasmos. And let me start with the English word in the ESV here, propitiation. Uh, propitiation means that which will satisfy the wrath of and take away the anger of God. Um, so Jesus, as the righteous one, the one who died on our behalf, his blood was mentioned earlier, in him and in his sacrifice on the cross, 
God is no longer wrathful towards us, um, and and our sins are no longer counted against us by God. Um, God is no longer against us because of our sin, and that's true not only for us, but for all sinners in the world because of Jesus' sacrifice. Um, some scholars uh, emphasize that this term uh, really has more of a sense, not of propitiation to, to uh, satisfy the wrath of or to restore a relationship, but expiation, which would mean to kind of take away the guilt and the stain of sin. Um, I think the term really includes both, and I think it's best understood by thinking back to verse uh, verse 7. Uh, yeah. Well, well, I guess verse 7 talks about cleansing, but thinking back to verse 9, where it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And this uh, this idea that Jesus is the one who, well, he just deals with the problem of our sin. And that word hilasmas, uh, it has an important Old Testament connection, the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle, where blood was poured on the Day of Atonement to atone for the sins of the people. That atonement cover that had the cherubim uh, molded into its, its, uh, its top, uh, that place of atonement for the people's sins, was called the hilasterion, the hilasterion. And uh, in, in Romans chapter 3, Paul says that God presented Jesus through his blood as a hilasterion for sin, um, which, uh, which is a, a reference to he's the fulfillment of these Old Testament blood sacrifices. And, uh, and again, not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. In Jesus Christ and in the shedding of his blood, God is now calling every sinner in the world back to himself. Their sins have been paid for. Jesus died for them. God is reconciled to them, and he's calling them back in Jesus' name. And that's, uh, that's the ministry of John in this passage, his testimony, and that's the ministry of the church. That's the witness of every individual Christian to all their family members, friends, and neighbors is that Jesus has died for them. And God is reconciled to them in Jesus Christ. The Reverend Dr. Thomas Egger is president of Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri. He's been helping us today to study 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 through chapter 2, verse 2. Dr. Egger, thanks for being our guest today. My pleasure. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about the epistle of 1 John, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a joy to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.